0: Hi everyone, welcome to the latest edition of On Point. Um, have someone on today that I very much admire, a person incredibly involved in the New Zealand community and wanting, um, well, to have Ronji on the spot, so to speak, to tell us a little bit about what he does. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure on On Point to introduce to you Taniyelu. Uh, Tanielu. Um, he describes himself as Ronji of Mangare, the centre of the universe, um, I know him amongst other claims to fame uh, as a lawyer, a husband, uh, and a great proponent within the Salvation Army, leading social work both practically and in policy uh, in our community. Ronji, great to have you on. How are you?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, talofa uh, lava everyone, and thanks Simon for having me. That was a great introduction. It was a little bit—I thought it was a little bit like my death, like it was sort of a, a, a eulogy, but. Um, yeah, great to be on the show and um, hopefully it's useful to the to the whānau that are listening. So thanks for having me.
0: Oh, look, thanks for making the time. I know you are incredibly busy. You're very much a man on the ground. But as I was thinking of different guests to have on, uh, your story, the person you are and the service you give to our community is quite uh, phenomenal. And I know you, you probably like to do it more quietly than not, um, but I thought it was good that people could could hear a little bit about you. So for those who don't
1: know Ronji, tell us a bit about yourself and the work you're involved with. Sure. So uh, I was born in Samoa uh, and then we, we were part of the second wave of migration that came here in the 80s uh, from the beautiful island of Samoa, moved to the capital centre of the universe, which is Māngere in South Auckland. Uh, grew up in uh, some really tough circumstances uh, with uh, violence and alcohol and gangs and drugs and all of that bad stuff, uh, not just in my community, but also in my home. Uh, but by the grace of God, uh, survived a lot of that stuff and um, went to university uh, because the in our the, the rugby league career was finished, Simon. So there was no point after um, after high school. So anyway, uh, <laughs> dreams gone. But then, um, long story short, went to university um, and got a couple of degrees and have travelled around the world and worked as a Christian missionary in um, about 30 different countries around the world. Uh, but uh, really uh, fueled the desire to come back and live in New Zealand for a little bit so I currently work as a lawyer and the principal policy advisor for the Salvation Army. Uh, my job essentially is to try and disrupt politics and politicians and stakeholders and corporates and try and challenge around um, uh, getting change in policy and law especially when it comes to issues around housing addictions, poverty, uh, and so on. I think the unique point of difference in my work, though, is, we, is, the, is the Salvation Army is a church before it's a social service agency, and so we get to advocate and lobby for policy and law change from a Christian and biblical perspective, which isn't always that welcome in um, society in Aotearoa, but that's okay. We we still have free speech for now, so we can contend for different ideas and different um, and different solutions to some of the challenges that we face. So that's my my work at the moment, but I still uh, live and work in South Auckland as well in my community uh, doing different things. So um, that's a bit of a summary of where I'm at. So thank you.
0: It's a phenomenal, look, a phenomenal
1: uh, summary.
0: I, I, I knew you had done uh, missionary work overseas, but 30 countries, I mean, could, not to get you to name all 30, we'd be here all afternoon, but I mean, what would be one or two that really stand out for you?
1: Yeah, I think we did a lot of work with persecuted Christians overseas, so those who are really suffering for their their worldview or their faith and, and often minorities. So we uh, did work in Nigeria and parts of Tanzania um, as well, which was really, um, I guess, eye-opening, Simon, for a boy from South Auckland who's standing on a mass grave in the middle of Nigeria where 500 Christians were killed in one night. Like that was sort of life-changing for me in terms of not just – living in a bubble in New Zealand, but sort of seeing the real critical life and death issues that people are facing around the world. So involved in a lot of that work, um, our friends run some uh, sex trafficking rescue work in India uh, that we've been involved in as well, that we're still involved in. Um, And um, a lot of our friends are also running some wonderful orphanages uh, for children uh, who have had their parents die because of their faith or who are HIV um, uh, orphans. And so... Uh, uh, we've been involved in that work in Indonesia and Uganda and a couple of other places. So you yeah, still have a heart and desire to go back overseas, but also know that there are some big challenges facing our country. But with in, in its context, there, eh, Simon, I think it, it's in, in, in its context. Like we often talk about poverty here in New Zealand. I do believe it exists, but I've seen extreme levels of poverty when we lived in the Philippines or when we um, when we've when we've done work in Nepal and 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 and, and so on. And so um, I I, see every, I try and see everything within its context and the perspective that is happening in that, um, in that situation in that country. So I'm very blessed to, 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 to do that work. And we, we still do some of that work, but also very, very thankful to be back in this beautiful country.
0: One of the tensions I find often actually to pick on the poverty question um, I get from time to time with people who say, oh, well, there really isn't poverty in New Zealand when you compare it to, as you say, the likes of the Philippines or India, Nigeria. And so forth. And I suppose there's a semblance of truth to that. But I mean, what would be your perspective? I mean, when I look at it, you go, yep, um, poverty in New Zealand's arguably not as bad as other countries, but that doesn't mean we
1: should ignore it here in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely agree. But again, I guess that's why I emphasize that in its context, I think right. within our context, we've got um, uh, examples and, and realities of poverty, whether it's the far north and, and the people, Fed uh, in the East Coast. It's Find in South Auckland, I think within its context, we have it. I think the, I guess two thoughts I'd have there is one, I don't believe that we should have the levels of poverty that we, material poverty that we have in, in New Zealand for such a wealthy country. We have this extreme level of, you know, 20% of children that earn some sort of material poverty. I don't think a country as wealthy and as, as prosperous as I should have that. And I think the second thought is, I actually think the real tragedy, Simon, is not material poverty. I actually think it's the poverty of the poverty mindset. I think it's the poverty of the, the spirit where our fam- a lot of our families sort of think that, look, this is generational, this is our lot in life, and and, and and they just sort of move on without really thinking that there are pathways out of some of these material challenges. And, and that's why I always try and emphasize I, that it's material poverty, but I, I often try and work in a space where actually what's the poverty of the mind, the poverty of, of, of aspiration, the poverty of hope, the poverty of dreams. And I think that is is maybe even more tragic than the material stuff because it doesn't find a way out. It doesn't work towards hope. It doesn't work towards solutions. So I see that in our community um, in South Auckland more and more. And so I think that's why I'm so passionate about trying to break dependence trying to break dependence on government and and stop relying on handouts and and all of these different things and actually see the solutions that exist within our own whānau and our own community. So that's how, that's my view of poverty we we work towards it we challenge it we 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 try and address it but you've got to look at what's the drivers of it and I think the real driver is the poverty of the spirit the poverty of aspiration and hope.
0: How Have we ended up do you think in that space I mean it's been it's, even though I'm in politics it's been a long time since I've been on the uh, the front line um, in sort of the voluntary and community work capacity. But I would, I can relate to what you've just said. We have material poverty, but in behind every case is that poverty of of spirit, of mindset, of hope and belief. And I mean, why have we ended up in that space in New Zealand? And I suppose as context for me, I, I mean, as we record today, it's a stunning, beautiful day, a country... But yeah, it's bright, it's green, it's full of just goodness, and yet we have a whole pile of our fellow Kiwis who just have given up. I mean, and they didn't just wake up and give up one day. There's there's reasons in behind. So I'm just wondering, with your experience, what do you think's driven that?
1: Yeah, look, uh, look, that's a that's a huge question. I mean, I, I guess I try and spend my day thinking about the answers today, because that's what we're trying to address is the drivers of those. Of those social issues and those social challenges, I think how we've gotten there is. And, and remember, I've only been back in the country about four years now, so I'm still trying to get my head around Aotearoa. But I guess as I come back to New Zealand, I often think of the fact that there's such a reliance on this thing called the state or the government for all of my, all of my hope and aspiration, and all of my, um, and, and my, my 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 prosperity relies on what the government does for me. And I don't. And I don't agree with that. I think there's enough um, mana and power and and um, and strength within our families and our communities that we don't need to necess- necessarily rely on always this big government and the big um, and, the, and the big role of states. So I think part of that is that there's there's a reliance and over reliance on the state. I think also I think there's an ongoing attack on the family unit as a bedrock of what makes up a, a strong. Community, I think that's been consistently happening, whether it's in media or politics. And when you destroy the family unit, you are starting to, you will get the, the the ripples of that in terms of the challenges that happen with our young people and and the suicide rates and the youth offending rates and all of that kind of stuff. And so if you if you're not providing that place where the child gets that affirmation and love and and support within the structure of the family unit, which is the bedrock of any culture, in my in my view, not just Western, but any culture. Then you actually start taking away the reliance on that family unit and putting it on government or putting it on the things in the street. Honestly, I should be there in prison, Simon, with the way that I used to live my life. That was that was that was my pathway. My boys were going to prison. They're still in prison. They've lived that life. But my parents challenged me to find. Not they they they, they try to provide as strong a home as possible, regardless of the problems that we had as a family or outside of us, so that we had something to aspire to and to move to towards and to and to hope for, rather than going down the line or the stereotypes that everyone else seemed to be going to. So those are two things that I just quickly point. out. I think over reliance on government, um, and uh, and, and, a, and an attack on the family unit, and I think connected to that is attack on those morals and values and ethics. Look, I, I love being Samoan, Simon. I'm passionate. I'm tattooed. I, I, I love my culture. It's my first language. But at the same time, I don't want to be judged just because I'm Samoan, just because I'm a brown dude from South Auckland and all of a sudden I need extra help uh, because I'm a brown dude from South Auckland. Like, you know, I want to be judged on my work ethic, on my morals, on my ability to, to, to care for people and to work hard not just because of my skin colour negative or positive you know what i mean and so i think those are those things that were instilled in me as as a uh, from my parents uh, from my grandparents uh, from my siblings and i think those things are in my view coming back into aotearoa under attack a reliance on government family the family unit um, uh, these values and morals that that build our um, our, our independence and our resilience and our mana so i think those things um, have led us to a lot of the social challenges that we see today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you and I tend to a- agree on a lot of that. In fact, though, listening to you, you uh, you're sort of like the Samoan, if I might, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, <laughs> when you're you're saying there, again, it's the, it's his quote wasn't, it, of, you know, the content of one's character, not mm. the colour of their their skin. And um, if I'm hearing you correctly, there'll be lots of times where you've been judged because people mm. will look at you and go, hey, there's a, Brown guy, is probably Samoan or maybe Tongan, just to you know cause you some trouble. Yeah, no, no, um, no, don't,
1: don't say that. Don't say
0: that. <laughs> oh no, 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 I I know the better, but I'm sure people are making pre-judgments, yeah. mix it all up. Is that yeah. tattoos and everything. People are making judgments without actually knowing your heart um, and where your mind, your mind yeah. is going. Um And, look, and it's guys, happened.
1: Yeah. I was just saying, it's to, it's happened both positively and neg- negatively. Like, I've had the experiences with the police. And to be honest, I deserve those experiences with the police, with the way that, that we lived our lives. And so it's been judged in terms of that sense. And I'm not going to bitch and moan about it. That's something that I went through that I probably deserved. Um, At the same time, I've been judged, on the other hand, when I walk into a corporate meeting or, um, or, or a government meeting, and, you know, and then be like, well, what is he doing? There? And look, I don't care. I'm not... I'm not going to be outraged by that like look that's just the world it's a it's a tough fallen you know world that we live in and so I don't want to complain about that kind of stuff I actually just want to work out okay how do I do the best to serve my fellow man um, and serve according to my faith and so yeah I've been I've always been judged by the way I look and the way I uh, um, and where I come from both positively and negatively but at the same time, I don't want to use that as a crutch, you know. I want someone to judge me just on, on my ethics, on, on on the way I work and, and my work vet and my, my the, the work that I've produced rather than just all this other stuff. So we're too focused on race, to be honest, in my view. But anyway, that's a different discussion. Oh,
0: yeah. And look, a fascinating rabbit hole one that, um, yeah, comes up quite a lot. I think the other side, again, it's another rabbit hole, is how people often hold on to grievances and people have... Genuine reason at times to be aggrieved. They have been, if you will, victimized people making prejudices and judgments and so forth. But I found in life you can make a decision whether to hold on to those things and let them define you. And I think a lot in the modern world, a lot of people do. Or I think, says me to you, your approach is far more life giving, which is, yep, it happens. The world's a bit broken. Um, I'm not going to let it define who I am. In your case, you know, I'm Ronji, I'm Simon. I've come with all my uh, faults and qualities. I'm going to let those, let those speak. I was struck too by what you're saying around governments. I think it should be really clear to listeners we're not talking here that government to be at it Labour itself or national. I think these are over time, it's governments, including party, the party I've been involved with. But yeah, people are becoming more and more dependent on the state. And when they, I think if I'm hearing you right, the more people become dependent on the state, on the government. They lose a little bit of it themselves and their own community and connections.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that is—it's a good point to acknowledge that. Look, I don't really care about left or right, centre politics, that kind of stuff. Even though I work in that space, I think I'm really after what brings the biggest change and what really blesses and helps and support people and families. I think when it comes to the dependency that we see, like you know, I go and work in our food bank sometimes and just help out there, which is right next door to my office and. You know, I've seen um, three generations of a family come in and grab food parcels, you know, and I think, is that really mana enhancing? Is that really building up um, uh, that family and and supporting? I'm not trying to get rid of, I'm not trying to destroy this idea of food banks. We need to help them in that extreme need. um, We need to deal with that existing extreme urgent need so that we can help with all the other issues that 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 are usually there. So I'm not trying to disparage food banks. I guess what I'm saying is, we're creating systems and and, and um, programs that are, that I think aren't actually helping people to thrive, but they're actually just perpetuating those same cycles. and And I think you sort of see that in, in the food bank numbers, for example, that the Salvation Army does uh, um, gives out. in In two thousand and twenty, at the height of of, of um, COVID, we gave out one hundred and fourteen thousand food parcels in one year. Usually we give out about 60,000 food parcels, you know, um, on average per year. So we almost gave out double during COVID. And again, the, these are symptoms of what's actually happening in that family's life, whether it's a, a, an addictions issue, a housing issue, a poverty of mindset issue, all of those things are happening in that one space. And so I think the more we can develop systems or initiatives um that are organic, that are sustainable, that can help break some of that um, dependency in those cycles, I think the more we'll see families actually gain more of that mana and that hope and that dignity that we want them to have. And it's hard for a whānau to come and get a food So It's it's whakamā, it's it's, it's embarrassing, but we try our best to do it in a way that supports and loves them, um, especially with the Christian message. But at the same time, we don't want them to get the, we, we don't want them to rely on that same food parcel. So it's a tension that we have in the social services sector. Um, but I guess that the, the, where I work at in my role is, what are the systems? What are the ideas? What are the solutions? What are the initiatives that can really help address and deal with um, some of these needs, are uh, these real um, needs that are out there in the community? Can I give you a quick example, Simon? Absolutely, um, I think and A quick example of that is um, there's been a lot of changes in the credit contracts and laws to do with loan sharks and predatory lenders and all that kind of stuff. A lot of the stuff is good. I've been spending the last three, four years of my life working in that space. But one of the things that we really wanted to do was disrupt what's called um, the mobile traders. So these, if, if the, for your listener, the listener who doesn't know, this is a mobile truck that goes out and sells a t-shirt they can get at, um, at warehouse for 20 bucks. For five bucks, they sell it for about twenty or thirty bucks to vulnerable people in the community. So these are trucks that go out in the community and sell prices at inflated goods. And one of the we we wanted to lobby and advocate for law uh, law change and policy change. We got a lot of that stuff. But then I wrote a business case for the Salvation Army to see if we can start our own mobile trucks. And instead of offering overpriced goods, let's go and offer safer and more ethical loans that people can access and get financial literacy help and and then meet meet with a social worker, worker, meet with a, a welfare worker, and then also support them holistically. And so when we first started the business, there was about, I think, 40 to 50 mobile trading businesses operating in Auckland. I talked to the Commerce Commission a couple of weeks ago, and they said there's about five or six left. So the whole system has been dis- disrupted. Doesn't mean that we, the fight ends. We got we got to fight. Find the other places to fight. But I guess what I'm saying is, if we can pro- provide solutions, ideas, initiatives, policy change, or just um, good hard work, they can really break those cycles of problem debt or reliance on loan sharks or reliance on 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 um, on payday lenders and finance companies. So that's an example I often give because it it took a long time to get there. But what I'm saying is those things are are meaningful and practical for the family who's facing debt and financial issues and whatever else is going on to actually try and circuit break the issues that they're going through. So that's just a quick example I wanted to give.
0: Oh, it might be a quick one, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, up until recently, it's probably because of the work of you and others the, those trucks were the scourge uh, in parts of my electorate. And unfortunately, they are, well, as they not just inflated prices, but then they'd give it on credit, as you'd well know. So all of a sudden, your $20 T-shirt, oh, I don't have the 20 bucks on me. Oh, no worries, they say. You can have it, you know, at 50% interest today, And the next minute, your T-shirt's $100. But absolute scourge. But I love the disruptive quality. And you've used that word a few times because... You looked at it instead of, if you will, complaining, which a lot of politicians—not <clears throat> going to name names—maybe sometimes myself—complain about it or just a law change. You've done something you just say practical, and I, I'm trying to think of the right word. You sort of mirrored what they did, but flipped it, flipped it on its head. Um, okay. I don't think it's a great success story. So be proud of that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I think, I mean, again, this is not my glory. This is a lot of people that worked in this. This was BNZ Bank as a corporate who came in and thought we can actually help with this. And they did a great job and we were able to connect them to Countdown and Pack and Save. And those, so this is a this is a whole team effort for sure. But I think the disruptive element is really important. I think a lot of that, um, Simon, has driven out of my Christian faith. I think, you know, that, that there was a challenge um, they're, um right from the teachings of Scripture, right through to the early Church, to actually make a difference in their societies and their communities, with with, with, the, with the the Christian message at the core of that. Um, so that's always framed my views of disruption. But um, it, it's also a Harvard um, Business School theory uh, that came out in the in the 1980s. It's called um, and it's called disruption innovation. And I've always been fascinated by that because instead of just looking at a problem and thinking, "Oh, it's too big." just complaining about it, but have, uh, but uh, disruptive innovation actually works out, well, how do we actually disrupt that broken system? How do we change it? How do we fix it? And, and, I, and so in my working career in the Salvation Army, I've always been interested in, from a policy perspective, how do we create disruptive innovation? Um, I mentioned to you before that I put forward a paper around a disruption innovation uh, social enterprise supermarket model like people aren't even, you know, that, that's a ridiculous idea. Well, actually, people are talking about it and people are, are giving that time, uh, that idea a bit more air. Yeah, so I think, I, I, I don't want to just sit in life and just complain and throw rocks at the system and think, oh, you bloody system, and just and just, and just get angry. I'm like. So we're not going to see not, you in Parliament, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it's good for people like you to handle that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. if I've got one life to live on this earth, I'm going to go hard in working out, how do I work out to support people, especially those who are vulnerable? It came from a similar background that I came from, but who don't want to stay there, who don't want to live in that kind of kind of area, and then move, keep moving on in life. And so, I think the more we can have that kind of innovative thinking to disrupt some of the broken stuff that's out there in our in our communities, I think the better our society really will be. And but at the same time, let's not disrupt the the things that shouldn't be disrupted. I think like the family unit, like the morals and ethics, those things are bedrocks and and those things I think are critical to a well-functioning society, but there are still, solution, there are still social challenges and problems that we should be challenging and attacking and going after for the betterment of people.
0: Yeah, and look, I'd agree, um, including around the nature of, of family, um, it is the bedrock. Um, just reading, as one does, I probably have too much time on my hand, I was reading the guy well Edmund Burke you'll know who he is the philosopher talks about the family as the little platoon um, and I've just always loved that analogy it is sort of that foundational bedrock and when you start t- tinkering or breaking with that people try to find community elsewhere without drawing the bow too long when we look at the rise of gangs and other unhealthy groupings I'd say 9.9 times out of 10 um, the root causes that that person you know again who's joined the gang for example there's been a family break. And the other side on that ethics and morals, and our listeners will have different viewpoints or different moral codes, but often when they get tossed out, all you're left with is is me or the individual and whatever they want. And I think, well, I begin to wonder whether in New Zealand we're seeing that more and more now, whole lots of me's with no moral ethical code all chasing for what they want. And you actually begin to see, and please feel free to push back, but as I look at the inequalities developing in New Zealand, that gap between, if you will, rich and poor, those with and without, is because we have a whole lot of people just
1: chasing after what's good for them, and they don't have as much care for the other person. Yeah, I, th- I wouldn't. I wouldn't push back much. I think that's probably what I see on my end. And I think, um, I think one of the things that that I've found, especially coming back into New Zealand, is how in the in how more individualistic our society has become is sort of a, a a very focused on what, what I can get out of life what I can get out of my employer what I can get out of whatever grouping that I'm a part of and, and i guess and and i guess that really goes against my the way i was raised because growing up in the Samoan family it wasn't about the i it was about the us and look there's real beautiful stuff about that and there's real challenging stuff about that as well. So I'm not going to romanticize my my culture or my people. But at the same time, that collective thinking and that collective mindset has been a has been a bedrock or using that word again or a pillar for our, for our, our people. And so I think that's why it's it is it is difficult sometimes functioning within um other parts of our, our society and our system because I come from a, from a system or a worldview that is so grounded on it's actually not about you it's about everyone else it's about our elders and I think just want to mention that part that you sort of alluded to is I don't see that care or that value of the other you know you know again it's just every man every man and his dog after themselves you know like it's just you go and get yours go get yours and I and I find that in a lot of the the work that I still do in my community outside of the Sally's, where you know where it is about about progressing um yourself, which I understand has a place, but but actually at the detriment of others. I think that's what I, I get worried about. When you try and progress and, and drive and go forward, go hard. if that's you, go hard. But if you're destroying others along the way, then there's no real care or value of that other, especially those that are maybe in a more vulnerable position than you are. At the same time, I've seen a lot of people who are uh, middle New Zealand, wealthy New Zealand that have cared so much for, for those who are less fortunate than, than themselves. I'm not completely hopeless about this. I think, I, I guess I just see a, a very selfish um, society growing more and more and um, and, and you mentioned the, the gang stuff and that's been a lot of my working life and a lot of my personal life involved in, in working in that space. And, and a lot of it is to do with family, but also a lot of it is to do with power, greed, sex, and control. But we don't want to talk about that stuff, Hey. Eh? And so I think those things can be just as powerful in terms of driving someone to get somewhere for themselves than those other things. And so uh, then, then then, the idea of, of, of family and belonging. And so, um, again, I'm not going to romanticise that part. I think we're too busy romanticising uh, a lot of parts of, the, of our society and actually looking really at what's happening. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting place. Oh, look, it... it It really is.
0: And uh, that selfishness is an element that worries me in in New Zealand. I I don't want to romanticise what New Zealand was like when I was a a kid growing up or my teenage or early university years, but I don't remember society being as divided. I don't remember the extremes being so notable. Um, And I certainly see a lot, and it's a general comment, because like you, I know some people who are incredibly poor but are some of the most generous people I know and some of the wealthiest people in New Zealand I know are also incredibly kind and generous. But there's still a lot in the middle, as you say, it's very selfish, it's all about me. And it's one of the risks I find as someone who's in politics and in the centre-right and a capitalist, it's one of the, the extremes which can come out, if you will, in the, the world or the philosophy that I work in, of people just pushing themselves ahead with no care for others. It's so like, oh, well, I've got a head, I'm great. doesn't matter that it's been on the backs, the hard work, to the consequence and detriment of others and you go oh gosh that's that's really unhealthy for it's not relational which is one of the big things we seem to be having today the relationship family community and with others
1: yeah and I also find that that especially coming back into New Zealand it's it's very tribal like I maybe it's because we've spent so much time overseas and served overseas but you know take Auckland for example all you brown people live here all you Asian people live here, or you Indian people live here. And I I find ourselves find our communities very tribal. And look, there's strength in that. Hey, because you need to be around that community, like-minded people. But I also think there's an there's an overobsession of those external factors and actually working out well what does it mean to to work across my ethnicity or my color and work with a Pakia guy, work with an Indian guy and work out hey, how do we address some of these issues? You know, when we were doing the the, the mobile trader stuff. You know um the business that we started the good shop um that talking the people that helped the most were rich white people that's all good <laughs> it was all good they they I'm not going to blame people for being rich uh, if they've destroyed people along the way then I would help I'd have issue with that but people have worked hard to get there my parents were immigrants they taught us to work hard to get somewhere so and not but to still care and, and show value in that so when we when we came together on the table and talked, to, you know, with these rich Pakia corporates and these and 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 some other NGOs and that kind of stuff, look, that was wonderful because then it wasn't necessarily about that. Well, you you guys stay here, you rich people are here. It's only but we actually came together to work towards a solution that will help people of all colours, Hey, Because they were those businesses weren't just preying on poor brown people; they were preying on poor white people, disabled people, you know. So they were doing all of that. So yeah, I guess. It's, it's just interesting coming back into the country and sort of seeing where we've gone. And it's a different New Zealand from even when we moved here in the 80s, where I didn't really see skin colour. Eh? I mean, it didn't help that only brown people were around there at their time. But, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't really see that. They were just a dude and a girl. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, even that's under attack. But anyway, different. Yeah, well... I mean, that's a whole... And look, I find it a,
0: a worrying and fascinating area. Again, it's just lots and lots of divisions. But, you know, listening to what you do, Ranji, it's actually a lot about bringing people together and, again, talking about those trucks that you set up. You were tapping people from all walks of life, all levels of income, ethnicities, you name it, and working together for a good and a common purpose, which, listening to you, links back to a lot of the things you're talking about. It's about dignity. Uh, it's about community, actually, and doing good for others, which probably leads me to one of the sort of the last questions. I mean, you do an amazing job, and can again I say to listeners, just you know, look up uh, Ronji's name, look at the work that he does and the policy he leads through the Salvation Army and that community. But I mean, ultimately, what led you here? You know, you you intimated or uh, hinted at the start you might have had a bit of a rough. Uh, early life and choices now all of a sudden you are a leader uh, in this community space What what got you into it and what what drives you in this work? You
1: yeah, look, I'll be really blunt because I'm too old to, to really care what people really think of me But I think the real answer to the question Simon is my faith in God Like if I didn't uh, come to faith as a young 18 year old I'd be dead or in prison without a shadow of a doubt And I think that was the circuit breaker to a lot of my own problems and my uh, my own anger you know to the system and to to white people and you know what i mean like it was, it was that was the real changer um in terms of my perspective and purpose and value and 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 uh um, and that's basically what drives me to this day i'm 43 years old now i've got um if you think of the old story of um, jesus feeding the, the, the thousands of people i've i've got a couple of fish and loaves in my basket um and like the young boy did and i' look i'm just gonna um, use the, the best that I can to uh, to use those fish and loaves uh, to represent my faith in my God that I'm unashamed about. And I'm unashamed about those values and that system and, and the Bible and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for my life. And that's really what frames how I live, Simon. Look, I, I, don't, I don't get things right all the time. I, probably my work wants to fire me every six weeks for the things that I say. Um, I get cancelled on media all the time. And look, that's okay, but I'd rather stand up for the things that I believe in based on my worldview, based on my Christian faith, rather than just be angry at the system and and, and get angry at what's happening in society and not do anything about it. I'd rather be a a participator in these things rather than a spectator in these things. And so I think society has too many spectators that jump on Twitter, or you you national people are doing this, or you labor people aren't doing this. A lot of spectators... But very few people that are getting stuck in to really try and address some of the issues. So for me, it's my faith in God. That's what led me overseas. That's what led, led me back. And look, I'm not a perfect man, Simon. Um, I don't like talking about the work that I, that I that God's allowed me to do. At the same time, um, it's been an absolute blessing. It's the greatest decision that I've ever made to surrender my life to Christ. And for those listeners who have a completely different worldview and think that I'm full of crap, look, that do you. I mean, that do you. That's all good. I, I have many of these conversations out there in the in the marketplace around faith and and values and ideologies. But I think for me, Simon, ideology, worldview, faith, belief, whatever you, you might call it, that drives what you do. That frames how you work. And so that, that is your why hey in sports we often say what's your why why are you doing this why are you involved in this why are you and so my why is my faith and if, if an atheist does it good go hard do your life um if, if if it's someone someone else with another system of belief that's fine but this is the system of belief that has given me purpose hope saved my life literally as well as um eternally
0: oh i think it's important for for people to hear i mean it's you know, there's a contest of worldviews at the moment, and often, um, and particularly a Christian viewpoints not to be um, accepted. And actually, it inspires a lot of people to good work, and you're one example of that. So um personally, I think more people need to share their stories and their motivations, no matter where that motivation comes from, because I think it, it's really enhancing. and um, and part of the reason I asked you on was knowing that you don't like trumpeting the work you do, but I, I think people need to understand. Uh, not only the work you do, but, you know, the person that you are, which is just quite remarkable. And I might also make the other point. It's so a paradox, Vicky, when I think of the Salvation Army, you mentioned right at the start um, how a lot of people don't want to, if you will, um, oh, sorry, New Zealand's becoming increasingly secular, doesn't want to engage matters of faith or morals or values, and yet paradoxically is even more demanding of the services of the likes of the Salvation mm-hmm. Army and, um yeah, I mean, you may have comment on this or not, but I do find it uh, odd, if not sometimes frustrating, that yeah, people are more than happy to take the services from different groups, but not understand the values that underpin that service.
1: Yeah, I often, I often describe it this way. Uh, I often find, um, especially when working with government, they love what we do. They don't really like or, or value why we do it. And I think you can, and and for and for a Christian or church or organisation like Salvation Army, how do you separate that? How do you separate your what from your why? As I said before, your why drives your what, and so I think that's the challenge. That and I think one of my concerns working in this sector, um, and who knows, long, so who, know, who knows how long I'll be working in the sector after this interview. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the, one of my concerns, Simon, is that we've become so professionalised and so slick and flash corporate ngos and corporate social services and yet we forget what our why is we forget what drives our work and for the salvation army it's still a christian church with the christian message of hope and redemption and forgiveness of sin and purpose and all of those beautiful words and so i think that's the that's that's a for me that's a tragedy thinking about that you know what that looks like and i've I've done other research in this and it's called mission drift where you're you're drifting so far away from your core mission that you've become more like you you, you've bowed down to whatever system or government or society wants you to do rather than truly contending and, and proclaiming why you're doing it and um, and doing that work with the love and the compassion that you're meant to. So I just I just get concerned about it. I have conversations internally about it. I've talked to other NGOs about it, and I think it's just a a challenge for the church. And, you know, I think that, it, and I think it is a bit of a, New Zealanders taking the piss a little bit because, you know, they love what we do. Hey, but, they, you know, the, the minute you talk about why with well, the God thing, oh, no, no, we can't have that. You know, that's, a, that's Bible bashing. No, no, it's not actually. It's actually talking about why we're doing this. And so, I struggle with that a lot. Oh, it's one of the
0: things I'm always fascinated uh, with as I go around the country in, in previous jobs I did where I was actually contracting community services. I always wanted to know why they do what they do. Um, and it didn't matter if it was Christian, Muslim, Ewe group, secular. I wanted to know their raison d'etre. What, what is it that drives you? Because ultimately, that gives me confidence in where they're going to to go. And that mission drift, I find, for those who begin drifting, it ends up in a bad, They end up hitting the rocks because it just gets lost. And I'm not going to name names of organisations, but over the years, there's been some amazing ones who start, often small. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a real purpose, and then all of a sudden, they got caught up with governments of the day, all the all the bureaucracy, and well, they've gone now. They sort of just they lost their way, which is always always a bit sad to to see.
1: Um, that's why. That's why Simon, we've a lot of the work that we've done in South Auckland outside of the salaries, I'm talking about my personal life, we've done without any government funding. We've done our, you know, whether it's the sports clubs, youth clubs, gang intervention, boxing clubs, all of that kind of stuff. The I think pretty much the majority of work that our group of friends and network and churches are involved in are all funded by ourselves. And I think a lot of that is because we keep, we keep our why central to our work. And then, and then secondly, that means we're not tagged to whatever government um, framing or media wants to frame us for that work. We just do our work. And, and 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 all the flash NGOs will come with all their programs and all their funding and they'll come and go. But these, you know, the people that we've been working in our South, just like going back 20, 30, 40, 50 years working in our community with no government funding. And, that's, and to be honest, we want to keep it that way because that allows us to be able to work with the families that we want to work with that, re- that desperately need help in the way that we want to work with them. A, in a way that helps show why we do it, but also gives all the expertise that we have. When we're talking about social workers, teachers, lawyers, doctors, you know what I mean? And so I, I value that kind of approach rather than just always waiting for money from Wellington.
0: Well, I found in my own limited work compared to you, often that model allows you, the organization, to have a, a genuine, if you will, free conversation with those in need. And more often you can hear from the families or the community, what they need. As soon as you bring in a, a more corporate or governmental structure, there's this other voice in your ear telling you what they think that group needs, and you go, "Actually, Agreed. do you mind? I, I just want to talk to them direct. I don't, I don't need a bureaucracy. I don't need a corporate relations person to tell me. I'd like to have a chat with them,
1: please." Hmm. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree.
0: Hey, Ronji, a big, big thank you for your time. I just, I just found it important for listeners to hear just a little bit about your work um, because what you do and what you represent for a whole lot of other Kiwis working in this space is is quite remarkable. So just thank you and for the inspiration you continue to give and the support, including to myself. um, I've got a big, people can't see this when we're on an audio podcast, but I have a big smile on my face because I just think the work you, you lead is inspirational. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, I guess Simon just, I mean, thank you for having me on your show, but it's been just a good catch up. Just, having a tala noa. I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert in anything except maybe South Auckland um, um, in, in my community. But um, look, if there's a whole bunch of people who probably disagree with me that are listening, and that's all good. I'm happy to have a conversation as well if you want to reach out and and sit down and talk properly. But in saying all of that, um, Simon, God bless you and your family and to your staff, and um, hopefully this is, help, is useful for someone out there that's listening. Um, but I guess for me... Um, I give God all the glory for that stuff that you, I I don't like talking about the work, but I give God all the glory for that stuff. Um, um, And um, I praise the Lord for the chance to use my life and and our family's life um, for this work in in this community, but also overseas. So, Thanks a lot, Ranji.